And may I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. By the way, Melchizedek, um, his name came up a few times in those two readings. In two weeks' time, Melchizedek is coming to a church near you. So in two weeks' time, I'm going to be preaching on the glories of Melchizedek. And then it will all be explained, I hope, and uh, I can't wait. Melchizedek coming to a church near you. So don't worry too much about Melchizedek today and what he's all about. Don't worry, plenty of time for that to come. Right, do you reckon, some of you will know the, this old hymn that has these lines. Others of you will be able to echo um, and will know what it's on about. Have we trials and temptations? Have we, is there trouble anywhere? Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered, burdened with a load of care? Well, I hope you're not this morning. I hope that you might, you, you're on top of the world, um, strong and untroubled. And if you are, then you're just going to have to mentally tuck this morning's message away for another time and for future use. But perhaps you are struggling now under a weight and a load of care. Well, prepare to be lifted with some good news. And here is the good news. We have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. And I hope that if that doesn't already mean everything to you, that in a few minutes' time, it will. So we're reading the letter to the Hebrews in our morning services at the moment. We're applying ourselves to it. And we have reached the beginning of its massive central section. From the end of chapter 4, where we've reached today, right through to, towards the end of chapter 10, the unidentified author of this letter presents Jesus to his readers as the great high priest. And the first thing he wants us to grasp about Jesus, our great high priest, is that his heart goes out to us in our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 is actually our key verse this morning. If you've got a Bible, do look, or if we could have the reading up there on the screen, uh, that would be really good as well. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Now the readers who first received this letter needed to know that. They had become Christians from a Jewish background, um, so they left the synagogue but now met as a community of people, the church of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they'd lost a whole load of legal protections that um, the Jewish community enjoyed. And so they were exposed to loss of their property and to imprisonment and to a host of other hostilities. Now, these external pressures of course, added to the inner temptation that we can all sometimes feel to compromise our faith in Jesus, or frankly, sometimes just to jack it in altogether. Well, the writer has just challenged them in chapter 3 and through into chapter 4 not to harden their hearts to God's word of promise, but to keep going with Jesus to the end. And yet, they felt so weak. The pressures were too much to bear. The temptation was strong. Do you ever wonder? I do. Think, Lord, can, can I really sustain the Christian life to the end? This Christian discipleship, can I really do it? 
Well, let's discover four very reassuring truths this morning about Jesus, the great high priest. We're going to learn them from our passage together. And the first is this. He has full access to the Father. Access. He has full access to the Father. So we need to understand, first of all, what the Bible has in mind when it talks about the high priest. Chapter 5, verse 1 is about as clear a definition as you'll find. Chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the high priest had to be a person of God's choice because the job involved dealing with matters before God. In other words, God would only do that with somebody he was happy to do that with, so he had to choose. There was, the job wasn't, you couldn't apply for it, it wasn't advertised. God chose the person, and he chose the family of Moses' brother, Aaron. And it was from that family the high priest was to come. So the priest dealt in a Godward direction. But the priest also, of course, was focused in a peoplewoods direction as well. They were a person, a man of the people. They were to represent the people before God. And one of the lovely things in the Old Testament and the priest, the high priest in the Old Testament part of the Bible, is that part of the gear he wore were these precious um, stones with the name that were on his shoulders and on his breastplate that had the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on them. In other words, when he entered into God's presence, it was like he was taking the people with him as their representative. That's the priest's job. Well, that's, that, that's the sort of the, the, the bottom line of his job. The sort of the pinnacle of his job his supreme duty was to offer sacrifices to God which dealt with people's sin, with their guilt, with their shame. And once a year he would do that by taking the blood of a sacrifice and he would enter into the part of the temple that symbolized God's presence. He would go in there with the blood as the people's mediator, the middleman between God and the people. By the way, um, it was one of the tragedies 500 years ago or so when the Church of England um, broke from the Roman Church is that they didn't lose the name for ministers, the name priests. Technically, in Anglican Church of England terms, I am a priest. Let me tell you, I ain't a priest. Not in that sense that only Jesus is a priest. There's another sense, actually, in which we're all priests. We're not going to get into that today. But leaders of the churches are not priests. It's a very confusing use of the language. G, the, the, the priest is the middleman between God and the people. Right, anyway, that's an aside. The priests in the line of Aaron, who would go into the house of, uh, into the holy place with the blood and represent the people, all that was symbolic. But with Jesus, the symbol becomes reality. He was appointed to his priesthood with much greater credentials than Aaron's descendants. So chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, back that up with two Old Testament quotations. Um, Aaron's descendants were high priests by accident of their human birth. But look at verse 5 of chapter 5. Jesus is not just Aaron's son, he is God's fully divine son. And, verse 6, his priesthood will last forever. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hey, had you heard? In two weeks' time, Melchizedek's coming to town. I, did I say that already? Oh, 
In other words, Jesus has a priesthood that will never end. And Jesus is a far greater mediator because Aaron made a sacrifice once a year for sin and then entered into the symbol of God's presence. Jesus made the perfect sacrifice for sin when he offered himself on the cross. He was raised. 40 days later, he ascended bodily into heaven into God's actual presence. Not a symbol of God's presence, but God's actual heavenly presence. And therefore, chapter 4, verse 14 the beginning of our passage, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, we, we profess. So Jesus has fully accessed the Father's heavenly presence as our great high priest, our mediator, our middleman. He is there for us. And so think about the logic of that. If he is there to represent us, we also have access to the Father through him. Hence, chapter 4, verse 16, the last verse in chapter 4. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can approach with confidence because our great high priest has gained full access to the Father. That's our first very encouraging truth about the high priest, Jesus access. He has full access to the Father. Here's a second one. Our high priest, this is our second heading, has inside knowledge of our lives. Knowledge. He knows us. The old wisdom says that you don't know someone till you've walked a mile in their shoes. Well, Jesus has run the whole marathon in ours. The whole of life he's run. So the Old Testament priests, think of them for a moment. They were uh, like all the rest of the people. They had to queue for the dump on a Saturday. They had to, well, I don't know what they did in their sort of ordinary life, but their ordinary life is just the same as everybody else's. They weren't exempt from the illnesses, the, the, the pains, the temptations, not at all. They experienced the same weaknesses as everybody else. Now, you might think, ah, well, that, they're no good then if they're like everybody else. Oughtn't they to be sort of set apart and special? No. The very fact they were like everybody else, that's what qualified them to act as priest. That was one of the key credentials. Look at chapter 5, verse 2, where it's explained. It says there, The high priest was able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray because, since he himself was subject to weakness. So the high priest ought never have to, have, to have been harsh with strugglers because he knew what it was like to struggle. And the same is true, amazingly, of Jesus, our high priest. Jesus struggled? What? Of course he did, because he was a real human. He became a real human being with real human struggles. Real human temptations came his way. In fact, look at our key verse again, chapter 4, verse 15. It says it. He was tempted in every way, just as we are yet did not sin. Tempted in every way, every single way. I've often wondered about this. Maybe some of you have as well. Does that mean he experienced that every sort of perverse temptation that has ever flashed across the screen of our minds also went through his? This is how I think of it, and I hope maybe it'll help you as well. Temptations like a tree. I'll be your visual aid. Do I look tree-like? I'll be your visual aid. Right, on the tree, there are the main branches of common temptations, these are the branches, 
which we all experience. What do they say? Money, sex, and power. Let's go for those three. Money, sex, and here's the power branch. Right. Money, sex, and power. These are the branches. But of course, each in, uh, and well, we share all those in common. Money, sex, and power, the temptation for material things, for um, physical pleasure, mainly sexual, and for power, influence, approval, or whatever else it is. Money, sex, and power. We all experience those things, but we all experience them in different ways, and those are the leaves. So we share common branches, even if the leaves are different in each of our individual cases. And Jesus knew all of those branches better than we do. He knew all those temptations, money, sex, power, everything. He knew it. And the thing is that, of course, actually he knew it even more intensely than we do. Because suppose we, get, we, we give up on temptation. We just give in when the dial gets to maybe temptation dial maybe two. He's still standing when the temptation dial is on 99.9, 100. He knows the full power and force of all these temptations just as we do and was without sin. He knows our temptations. He knows our weaknesses because he experienced weakness himself. And in fact, it, it actually says it in verse 7. It refers to the most extreme temptation that he faced. Um, uh, chapter 5, verses, um, did I say 7 and 8, I think it is, when he talks about the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, yeah, verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. He talks about how Jesus, in the time of his, during the days of life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the ones who could save him from death. There he was in the garden before he died, facing rejection, violence, injustice, and death as a vulnerable man, and yet with power to walk away and to abort the whole um, the plan that lay ahead of him to go to the cross. He could have just stopped it there and then. What massive temptation that was. He knows what it's like to feel weak. And our cats, when they come in in the morning, in fact, any time when they want food, they plead with us. Meow! So pleading. This plaintive look of desperation in their eyes. Meow! But in that look, in that meow, there is a tone, there is an edge of accusation. And do you know what that accusation is saying? You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it feels like to be a poor, hungry little cat. Maybe, maybe that's my imagination going over time. But that, they seem, you don't, know, you don't know, understand. How could you? You don't know how hard our lives are, is what they seem to be saying. And we sometimes find ourselves saying that almost to God. You don't know what it's like. You in your pearly splendor of omnipotent majesty. Jesus does know what it's like. No one can accuse him of not knowing what our griefs are like because he himself has been weak and vulnerable. He has inside knowledge of our lives. So let's learn these uplifting things. Access to God, the Father, for us. Knowledge, inside knowledge of our lives. Here's a third thing, most remarkable of all in some ways. He has heartfelt sympathy for our weakness. Sympathy. Jesus was tempted as we are. He knows our weaknesses and he sympathizes. I love the way chapter 4 verse 15 um, makes the point. It makes it doubly 
it, it, it makes it doubly strongly by expressing it doubly negatively. Let me just explain what I mean. I've got a friend who, when he wants to say, I totally agree with you, says, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. <laughs> what he means is, I really do agree with that. So what the writer of the Hebrews says is he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. What he means is, doubly positive, we really do have a high priest who can totally sympathize with all our weaknesses. Just let that sink in for a moment. He sympathizes with us. Just think about the moment when you were in an absolute pickle, when you felt the world was falling out, or, and you, felt, you thought, I am such a dysfunctional, non-viable human being that it probably would be better if I stuck my head in the freezer and left it there for a long time until... He was full of sympathy with you in that moment. His heart went out to you. He sympathizes with us. Um, the original meaning of that word, sympathy, it comes from two words, actually, two Greek words. It's the same in the, the Greek New Testament as well. To suffer with. Sympathos, to suffer with, or with, suffer, suffer with. In other words, the idea is that his heart, his, his, his heart goes out from him to us so that he feels in us and with us what we're feeling, suffering with us. And that, extraordinarily as well, doesn't just include our weaknesses, it also includes uh, our troubles associated with our own sin. It's not that he sympathizes with our sin itself, he never, he never indulges us in that, but his heart goes out to us in everything that surrounds our sin, the temptation that we experience, the shame that we go through, the, the guilt, the mess the face-in-the-mud experience that comes to our own, sometimes to our own deliberate fault, and we think, what an absolute twit I've been. Jesus' heart is going out to us, his children, his people, in sympathy. We, f we feel that, uh, actually, in these moments of ignorance and weakness and sin, that that's when he feels most disapproving towards us. Yet the thing is, the more we suffer, the more we struggle... Actually, the more his heart is drawn towards us, which is amazing. It's amazing, not just that someone so high and exalted should even care. It's amazing that somebody who himself is, the, is perfect and did not sin should feel so compassionate towards those who don't. Because Jesus got it all right. The undisputed master of human life. He defeated every temptation. Remember how he struggled in the garden? Yet again, in chapter 5, verse 8, we read there about how he, how he, uh, he stayed perfectly obedient to the Father's plan, even though it meant drinking the cup of God's judgment for the rest of us. He's perfect. He, he, he's, he's got no blemish on his track record. They say that the best teachers are the ones who found it hardest to learn themselves. I don't know whether it was sort of a, um, something to do with this message today. Last night I was dreaming that I was back in school. Do you ever have those dreams? I was dreaming I was back in school in my worst subject. You know what my worst subject was? Maths was nearly there, but actually my worst was art. I am terrible at drawing. And in my dream last night, again, I was drawing and trying to explain to the teacher in my dream that I couldn't do it. Well, a teacher who has never, ever struggled 
You go to that teacher and you say, I can't do it. And they're like, but it's easy. You just do it like this. Sort of Tony Hart. There it is, look. But I can't do it. Oh, you idiot. <laughs> it's easy. How crushing. But when we reach out to Jesus in the mess, even if our faces are in the mud through our own deliberate fault, his response towards us is utterly full of love and sympathy, even though he himself is without sin. And of course, actually, that's the great thing. He, there's something quite comforting about going to someone and saying, look, I've really mucked up. And they go, yeah, I know, I've really mucked up as well. And there's a sort of fellowship in failure. And I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a warmth about that. But actually, ultimately, what we, what we need is not another sinner. We need a winner. We don't need another victim in the hole. We don't need another, another loser in the hole. We need someone to lift us out. And that's our sinless Jesus. And precisely because he is sinless, he doesn't treat our weakness with irritation, but with patience. He doesn't treat us with criticism, but with compassion. He, do, he, he meets us with kindness and not a cynical kind of, <laughs> told you so, loser. Not at all. When we're down, when we've mess, messed up, when we feel distant from God, we fear that if we pour our hearts out to Jesus, perhaps it'll be like the bad art teacher scenario who just says, just do it, just draw it like this. Plenty of Christians, I find, myself included sometimes, have wished that we could just have an encounter with Jesus like those people in the Gospels who came to him and found him so compassionate and full of love towards them as, they, as he welcomed them. But he seems so different now he's ascended into heaven, so distant, so hidden from view. Or perhaps because he's been promoted, he's like achieved superstar status and he's like the superstar who's like, uh, who sort of unfriends all his old school friends on social media because they're a bit embarrassing to be associated with. And Jesus is like, oh, those people, <laughs> I'll forget about them. Look, I'm going to take another round of applause from the angels. Of course he's not like that. He's full of love. You know, our forebears um, certainly struggle with these issues of not knowing the compassion of Jesus and his love for them. One of the greatest um, Bible scholars of, this, uh, of English history um, was Thomas Goodwin of Cambridge, mainly. He was one of the Puritan um, theologians. He wrote a book to help people of his own day. It's called The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. It's only about 70 or 80 pages. It's, it's 17th century English, so it, you, know, you need to have your wits about you. It's not one for a bedtime read because it's hard work, but it's worth it. It's gold. Let me just quote, he, he, and he, he chose, it's basically an exposition of this text, um, Hebrews 4.15, which is our key verse. And let me, let me explain, this is Goodwin, Thomas Goodwin, explaining why he chose that text, and I've updated the language a bit. He said, I've chosen this text as that which, above any other, speaks of Jesus' heart the most and sets out its workings towards sinners. Here we, as it were, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's chest, and we feel how his heart beats and yearns for us, even now, in glory. Does that help you to know not only what he has done for you historically, objectively in the past, but how he feels about you now 
Does it bring relief in trials, temptations, and troubles? It does me. It draws my heart out towards him to meet his heart as it comes out to me. Access. He has full access to the Father. Knowledge, inside knowledge of our lives. Sympathy, heartfelt sympathy for our weaknesses. Fourth, he is the perfect source of our salvation. Salvation. Sympathy is really good, um, but we need more than that. We need help. We need salvation. And our great high priest has both sympathy and capacity. He has compassion and he has power. So, chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Extraordinary verses. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, coming to a church near you. Did I say that already? I think I did. Two weeks' time for Melchizedek. By the way, do you find that strange in verse 8 when it says that Jesus had to be made perfect through learning obedience through what he suffered? What does it mean? Because as son of God, as the eternal son of God, he was already perfect. But, of course, he became a human being like us. And as the human savior for humanity, for this, for that role, he had to attain perfection. To offer the perfect sacrifice for sin as a human priest. He had to pass the test that Adam failed. Just think of it. Adam and Eve disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted himself to obey the Father's plan. And then, when he offered himself on the cross, this perfect sacrifice, God spectacularly approved the offering. He raised this man from the dead. He lifted him to his immediate heavenly presence. And now, this perfect man has become, look at verse uh, 9, the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. And if he is the source of salvation, the source of perfect salvation, the perfect source, then he will surely help us with all our lesser needs, whatever they may be, today or tomorrow. Verse 16 confirms it, the last verse in chapter 4. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Are you in a time of need? Then go to the throne of grace. I love that description of God's throne. The throne of grace. That's the Father's throne. See, we might wonder, we might think maybe the Father, God the Father perhaps, loves us less than Jesus because after all, we need a priest, Jesus, to, to bring us to the Father. So maybe the Father loves us less. No. Of course, the Father has never experienced human life as God the Son has. But who sent the Son to save us? Who appointed him as great high priest and drew him into his presence in heaven? It was God the Father. The whole thing is the plan of his love. In perfect unity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have given the Son of God as man to be our great high priest. He has access, full access to the Father. Knowledge, inside knowledge of our lives. Sympathy, 
heartfelt sympathy for our weakness, and he has salvation. Indeed, he is its perfect source. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Are we weak and heavy laden, burdened with a load of care? Then there are two things we've got to do according to this great passage. First, chapter 4, verse 14, the first verse of the passage. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven for us. So are we going to let go of that? Are we going to turn back on that? We keep a close eye on what we value. I parked up my bike yesterday. I've got two bikes. I've got one absolute pile of junk, which I ride around and park outside Morrison's, and I don't care. If anyone nicked it, frankly, it would be a compliment. It would be flattering. I've got another bike, which is my road bike that I, that I like to race on, and I'm very pernickety about it. And I chained it up yesterday in Danson Park near some teenage boys. And I said to them, I, t- I spoke to them before, so they knew that I could t- had checked them. And I said, I said, look after my bike, won't you? Keep an eye on it. And my friends who were with me were, 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 were taking the boys off and were going, oh, Tom, you know what they're saying? And I was saying, all right, granddad. <laughs> said, you'll come back, you'll find your bike upside down with its, with, with its wheels coming out of the lake. We, take, we pay very close attention to the things that we value. How hard, closely must we hold Jesus? Never let him go, hold firmly. That's the first thing we've got to do. Then second, verse 16, let us approach God's grace with confidence. Not cowering like an unwelcome guest with an imposter complex, but convinced that with such a sympathetic, perfect high priest, we will receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you very much that you have admitted Jesus, our great high priest, into the most holy place of your own heavenly presence. Thank you that through him we have access there too. And we pray that knowing our access, we would draw near with confidence and that you would give us now great sympathetic high priest Jesus, mercy and grace to help us in our time of need now and every day. We ask it all in the name of our great high priest Jesus. Amen.